Let us pray together. <clears throat> Come Holy Spirit in great power and be our guest in a special way this day when we memorialize your coming into the hearts of Jesus' disciples and thankfully into our hearts as a gift from our Lord. And at this time, let my words be your words and all to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> I had some thoughts with the archdeacon a way of festooning the church with red balloons. He did not buy that. <laughs> then I said, okay, if we can't do balloons, we'll do banners, we'll do butterflies on the end of strings. He didn't buy that either. We don't need that. We've got the Holy Spirit. We don't need these accessories. It's very difficult, at least it is for me, to do justice to the events of Pentecost. I shall try, but I must rely on the Holy Spirit himself to awaken the sense of the Spirit in all of your hearts. I shall plant a seed and pray for its growth into a thriving plant in your hearts. Let me start by rereading a part of the epistle for today. We need to focus. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Then there's, and I'll stop quoting there, then there's the list of different nationalities, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Let me come at this in two parts. First, let me elaborate on some of the details of the event, and then secondly, what are we, believers, to do about it? As an introduction, I'd like to point out that Pentecost was not a new holiday created for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, no. It was the Feast of Weeks, also called Harvest and the Day of First Fruits. The word Pentecost means 50th and refers to the fact that it fell on the 50th day after Passover. For the Jews, this was a festival of joy and thanksgiving, celebrating the completion of the harvest season. Most importantly, it was the second major feast in which all able-bodied Jewish males were required to attend, the other two being Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. The importance of this is that there would have been an equal number of folks in Jerusalem for this particular holiday as would have been seen on Passover. Thus, a huge crowd. But what about that very special group, at, less, at least special to us, Jesus' disciples. 
clearly after his death, resurrection, and ascension, these first Christians were waiting, waiting, waiting for something very special to happen to them. And they weren't quite sure what they were waiting for. In obedience to Christ's command, they waited in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the outpouring of the Spirit. They did not wait in idleness. Luke 24, 53 tells us they were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. And if you recall my sermon from a few weeks ago, the fishermen were out fishing for fish, but not for men yet. They had been taught by Jesus that they should baptize, absolve, and celebrate a special memorial supper in remembrance of him, but they did not rush into these activities. Vernon Staley says they waited for the fulfillment of Christ's own promise for that power that was to come on them from on high. Okay, that's the setting. Then what happened? As we read about the actual event as recorded by Luke in chapter 2 of Luke-Acts, which I read and which Praveen read, we hear some rather amazing things. First, there is a roar of wind from heaven. Matthew Henry, the highly respected and long-deceased commentator, says this wind was to clear the disciples' heads, to awaken their expectations. I love his verbiage. You've got to love Matthew Henry. Let me just say this. This was big. This was bigger than Fios. One can imagine... One can imagine a roaring wind. This always makes me think of the description of the arrival of a tornado to those who've been near when one hits. Folks say it's like a freight train going by close to where one is standing. And in, a, in any event, it must have been an awesome sound and probably terrifying, at least at first. But I'm certain that it did get the attention of the waiting disciples. Then we are told that tongues of fire rested on each of them. And this was not a consuming fire. I think back to the burning bush in Moses in Exodus 3, where the bush was not consumed by fire. Whatever was going on here, all I can say from my very limited perspective is that it was an amazing and an awesome event, where the disciples had an experience of the power of the Spirit flooding or overwhelming their beings such as they had never had be excuse me, before. <clears throat> well, what about speaking in tongues? In the various strands of Christian thought, this so-called glossolalia is either emphasized or de-emphasized. I see this phenomenon is something that I have experienced personally on more than one occasion. And so I would be the last to decry its reality or its utility for those who find it useful for their prayer or praise life. Now again, I'm extrapolating to what happened to the disciples, to what we think about today when we talk about speaking in tongues.
I would have to say that the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was such a unique and profound phenomenon that this rather peculiar way of communicating does not seem extraordinary at all. And I shall leave this at that, at least in this setting. Once again, you've heard me say this a few times, I should say that context is king in Holy Scripture. Immediately after this descriptive section where we hear about the roaring heavenly wind, the tongues of fire, and the speaking in, in, in unknown or at least incomprehensible language, Peter stands up and gives a most important and educating sermon to the other 11 disciples and to anyone else who would listen. He sees his audience as all of you, of all of those who are in Jerusalem. Peter reminds them that what they have experienced was prophesied by the prophet Joel. Peter sees wisely what has occurred as a fulfillment of that prophecy. Joel 2.28 And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Then Joel goes on to some eschatological material, which is not pertinent right here. Following this by Peter, he goes on to preach about Jesus' death, his resurrection, and in a most compelling manner adds that God has made Jesus, whom they all had crucified, both Lord and Christ. I say compelling because the listeners were cut to the heart and asked what they should do about this situation. Peter responds with one of what I think is the most important commands in the entire New Testament. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. This should be listened to very thoughtfully by us today. It is as much meant for us as for the 3,000 individuals that were baptized and added to the crowd on that day. Well, that's enough about the setting and the unique insufflation of the Holy Spirit. Did I say insufflation? It is not my term, <laughs> but the term used by the Anglican priest and theologian Michael Green. Some of you may have read Michael Green. There's kind of a windy sound to the term. <laughs> I was talking to Bob and Father Andrew last night about that. And incidentally, before I go on, I should recommend Michael Green's book entitled, I Believe in the Holy Spirit. It's very helpful. Just what are we as Christ followers to take from this event? And what must be our response? Perhaps a little more clarification is in order. Let us first acknowledge that Jesus is the unique dispenser of the Holy Spirit. 
one cannot get him except through Jesus or get to Jesus except through him. Remember that we had to wait for Jesus to ascend to his Father before Jesus and God the Father could together send the Holy Spirit, Spirit to be our comforter and our counselor. It is very clear to me that there is an identity here between Jesus and this Holy Spirit. I wasn't going to mention this, and I don't want to take too much time, but I, I many times come across the idea that the Holy Spirit is the comforter. And it's come to me that I don't think he wants us comfortable. And I'll let you think about that. He's a comforter. When we need him, he's there. We can ask for help. But he doesn't want us comfortable. We must recognize that Jesus could not stay with us here on earth. The work of Christ, as you've heard me call it, was for Jesus to become incarnate as a God-man, to volunteer to be crucified as an atoning sacrifice for all sin for all time, and to rise from the dead and ascend to his Father in heaven. In the days of his flesh, Jesus was limited by space and time, and he still had much to teach the disciples and to teach us. The Holy Spirit entering there in our minds and hearts, if we make room, will continue Jesus' teaching function. Michael Green again calls the Holy Spirit another Jesus. Now, I'm going to have to ponder that idea for a while, but I think you can get the idea that there is no complete autonomy for the Holy Spirit any more than there was for Jesus himself. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are two of the three parts of the triune God that we worship. And listen carefully to this. The function of the Holy Spirit was not to give some new revelation of his own. No. His function is to point to and bear witness to Jesus. With the arrival of the Holy Spirit, we are better off than if Jesus himself were here. The Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence within our hearts and minds and teaches us more and more about Jesus' personality and his paradoxical ways and how, as the song has it, we can follow him more nearly day by day. And let us never forget that the coming of the Holy Spirit anticipates the parousia, or the parousia, if you prefer. That is the second coming of Jesus. The kingdom came in great power this day and will never, ever be withdrawn. This is the so-called inaugurated eschatology. It's a hard one. Or more simply, the already, but not yet. Jesus was here. Jesus did his work to reconcile us to God by atoning, but he is not here now.
He will return, however, as he told us he would. And we all have that faith. I can't seem to get to what we should do in response to the Pentecost event. So let me sum it up in one word. And that word is mission. All of the Gospels have a commission for us of one way or another. And all in one way or another tell us that we must go to those that do not know and let them know the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Sinners, just like you and like me, can find salvation. And yes, eternal life by accepting Jesus and his Holy Spirit into our hearts. And I do not mean to imply that mission needs to be outside the confines of Marlboro or of your own town or even of your own family. There is plenty to do to spread the gospel in the here and the now. Nowhere near enough has been done. Folks are starving for the good news and unfortunately many do not even know it. John Stott, whom I've mentioned many times previously, refers to the words of Archbishop William Temple, one-time Archbishop of Canterbury, about Jesus' words. No one can possess, or rather be indwelt by, the Spirit of God and keep that Spirit to himself. Where the Spirit is, he flows forth. If there is no flowing forth, he is not there. Stott comments that this link between the Holy Spirit and Christian mission is indissoluble. To neglect mission is to contradict the very being of the Spirit. And finally, Stott says, an essential mark of a Spirit-filled church is both its compassionate outreach into its local community and its serious commitment to global mission. And we ought to all reflect on that. And so, as my beloved Bishop Harvey would say, there it is. As we contemplate Pentecost and that amazing series of events where the Holy Spirit was sent to indwell us, let us all through prayer and continuing study of Scripture allow that Spirit to grow and yield fruit so that we let our response be to spread the good news of Jesus Christ at every single opportunity that may come up. And if opportunities don't come up, we must make some. Once more, walking across the room is a good start. And gradually expanding outside one's comfort zone, and that ain't easy, and working on relationships so that those whom you touch in one way or another will want to know just why you behave as you do. They will then also want Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Let's remember God's grace. All this is readily available and it's free of charge. Thanks be to God for his gift of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. Amen.